Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. With 12 days left before the end of the year, it seems likely that there will be fewer than 300 murders in the city of Baltimore for the first time since 2014. As of today, 255 people have been identified as victims of homicide, most of who whom were killed this year, although some were injured in earlier years and their deaths were ruled to be homicides during the course of this year. While 255 murders represents terrible and tragic losses for the families and friends of these victims, compared to last year, 65 fewer people were killed as of today than on this same day in 2022. 55 fewer people have been shot in non-fatal incidents than last year at this time. Baltimore isn't the only place where violent crime is declining. In cities with more than 250,000 people, murders are down more than 12% across the country. By some metrics, in 2023, the U.S. has had the lowest rate of violent crime in 50 years. Today, my guests are some of the people who are working to reduce violence and address the root causes of crime in Baltimore. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott announced his strategy to address violence in our city in the summer of 2021, setting a goal of reducing murders by 15 percent per year. We didn't achieve that goal in 2021 or 2022, but we are on track to exceed it this year. The strategy is two-pronged. First, the city has been establishing a community violence intervention ecosystem. And second, it's targeting people who are at the highest risk of committing violent crimes or being the victim of violent crime. Later in the program, we'll talk about the second part of this approach with Jeremy Biddle, a special advisor for the Group Violence Reduction Strategy, and Deputy Police Commissioner Monique Brown, who heads the Patrol and Community Policing Bureau for the Baltimore Police Department. But we'll begin with Stephanie Mavronis, the Interim Director of MONSI, that's the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement, and Aisha Burgess, a member of the Community Violence Intervention Advisory Board. They join me here in Studio A. You are welcome to join us as well. Our number, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at WIPR. Aisha, welcome. Thank you. And uh, Stephanie, it's good to see you as well. Welcome. Thank you. So let me ask you, Stephanie, to begin by uh, defining what the distinction is between these two parts of the the plan here. We have the CVI, the Community Violence Intervention, and then we have the GVRS, the Group Violence Reduction Strategy. So all these, we got an alphabet soup here. Uh, Tell us what they mean. Absolutely. Um, And thank you for having this conversation. Um, Together, these strategies represent the mayor's dual approach to gun violence prevention and intervention. When we think about the group violence reduction strategy, we're thinking about group violence. How do we interrupt um, the dynamics we see for violent social networks, not necessarily limited to gangs per se, but thinking about any social networks that may engage in violence. Um, and so how we're using targeted communication and enforcement, partnering with law enforcement, the state's attorney's office and service providers um, to really do some targeted outreach and engagement with those populations and also um, make the promise that if 
individuals who are participating in violence continue on that path, there will be swift and certain consequences. So that's GVRS, the Group Violence Reduction Strategy. The other end of the mayor's um, dual approach is really important, and I'm glad we have a chance to unpack it here today. Um, CVI, Community Violence Intervention, um, really is about getting at the root cause of what um, leads to violence at the community level, but really speaks to those non-law enforcement programs, initiatives, and strategies um, to interrupt the cycle of violence and to push back against norms um, that say community violence is acceptable because we want to send the message through our programming in a public health informed way and in an evidence based way um, that violence is not acceptable and we should never accept it as normal. And so when we think about CVI, there's a range of programs that can fit under that umbrella. Everything from safe streets or violence interruption work <clears throat> to um, community-based programs like Challenge to Change and We Are Us that maybe engage in a form of mediation um, or community outreach and even victim services providers. And so a lot of things exist within that umbrella. Um, and I'm glad that Aisha is here too to really speak to what that public health end of the work looks like because that's fundamentally at the heart of community violence intervention. Yeah, the mayor talks, Aisha, a lot about, you know, a, a, a broad-based uh, all agencies uh, on deck uh, approach. Talk about the importance of community involvement in reducing violence. It's not just up to the police and the state's attorney and uh, even the health department. Absolutely. So the public health approach, the public health approach to community violence is really looking at, as you said earlier, addressing the root causes. And so we do this by looking at a prevention framework um, at that tackles this problem at multiple levels. Um, at the individual level, we are looking at um, those that are directly impacted by violence, increasing supports around them, building skills around conflict resolution and conflict management skills, um, teaching them how to uh, identify their emotions and regulate those things um, without uh, engaging in violence. Um, at the relationship level, we are looking at families that these individuals are connected to. We're looking at systems that they're connected to and, and programs in the community and their friends and peers and all of those things that tend to have an influence on whether or not they engage in violence. And so what we want to do is strengthen up those places and those people uh, and spaces that the individual is connected to so that they can support the transformation um, around not accepting violence and, and wanting to build some self-efficacy around the prevention of it. So you're, excuse me, you're a member of this Community uh, Violence Intervention Advisory Board. Mm -hmm. What is your mission? Your, your the, this group, who, who is on that? Uh, how big a group is it? Uh, and what, what do you all hope to uh, accomplish? Yeah, so this is a very diverse group of stakeholders who are concerned about the, the incidents and violence that we're seeing in Baltimore. So we have community with lived experience, a part of that advisory board. Obviously, I, I'm a part of it as a representative from the public health sector. Um, we have um, health uh, emergency room physicians who are part of it, who see uh, people coming into the ER room who have been directly impacted by it and um, connecting them to uh, the hospital-based intervention program so there's no retaliation um, once they're discharged. We have, um, I believe, someone from the Behavioral Health Authority um, or the Behavioral Health System who is um, working on addressing trauma and providing those mental health supports that are so important and critical when, when people are exposed to trauma and then um, that goes untreated 
then they resort to what they know. Right. And so um, I think this is a really diverse group. We have a philanthropic community there. And so what we do as an advisory board is really leverage the resources and supports to really um, support the CVI ecosystem and the programs underneath. Um, make sure that um, institutions that are operating specific components of violence prevention, that they feel supported and they're giving the the, the resources to build their capacity. Um, and I think ideally we're, we're looking at uh, establishing a community, mobilizing a community that really can sustain this work. Right now we have institutions and we have public agencies that are leading the cause um, and we have community partners at the table, but we really want to build community capacity to be able to continue this work beyond any funding that may be allocated to support it. Aisha Burgess is a member of the Community Violence Intervention Advisory Board here in Baltimore. Stephanie Mavronis is the interim, interim director of MONSI. That's the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. We're talking about reducing violence in Baltimore City. Here on Midday, I'm Tom Hall. Our number, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at WIPR. Org. We have a caller, Elaine, on the line in Baltimore. Elaine, welcome to Midday with Aisha Burgess and Stephanie Mavronis. Yes, hi, thanks. I wanted to understand um, how allocations are made through Monsi and through the city for these smaller community-based organizations. We work with small groups like Let's Thrive Baltimore, Family Survivor Network, City of Refuge over in Brooklyn, and they don't have the capacity to generate lots of grant writing um, you know, responses. So how do they get into this CVI ecosystem effectively and get some more resources? They're often the first place that a community member will go to when there's been a shooting and they need help navigating the system. And these groups are working every day to help you know, their neighborhoods um, recover from shootings and move forward. Yeah, thanks for the question, Elaine. Stephanie, what do you think? It's a great question and I think speaks to something that we've started doing and where there's obviously opportunity for growth and improvement. When we talk about building a community violence intervention ecosystem, the vision that the mayor has is really to think about how do we build a network of programming um, really connected to what Aisha was talking about, having all of those wraparound supports. And so when you mention a Let's Thrive Baltimore or a City of Refuge, these are actually two organizations that Monsi has provided funding to, um, both in terms of work around anti-human trafficking and also in victim services and CVI. Um, those allocations happen in different ways. We routinely make small grant opportunities available on our website through a grants portal, um, both with our American Rescue Plan Act allocation and um, with our general funds allocation. And so that's something we want to continue doing. But I will say when we started out as an agency at the start of Mayor Scott's term, um, one of the first things that we took on was wanting to make smaller dollar grants available, especially to organizations who have never partnered with the city before and who have never received city funding. And we knew that that meant um, we would need to work closely with people. It's not easy to contract with the city. It can be challenging for organizations that have historically been volunteer based or don't have a budget because the process is complicated. Um, and so we're committed to continuing to work with organizations and be um, and look for opportunities to sustain funding, even if it means we're helping partner on a letter of support for another grant um, or figuring out where we can make continued funding happen. So I'm happy in the case of Let's Thrive Baltimore, we were able to make second year CBI expansion funding available to them through our ARPA allocation. 
Um, but I think there's so many ways that we can be supporting our community-based partners and our grassroots efforts that haven't partnered with the city before. They need that support and that opportunity to get in on the work with us. Yeah, the ARPA allocation, as I understand, it's a little more than $19 million, including about $2 million in these small grants, these competitive grants. And Aisha Burgess, I'm interested that one of the challenges your group faces is this kind of a priori acceptance of violence in the community. Part of what you're trying to, uh, the, the message you're trying to get out to some of these communities that are so deeply affected by violence is that it doesn't have to be this way. Why do you think that's a challenge? That's interesting. Well, I, I mean, I think there's years of exposure to trauma that has gone unaddressed. Um, and as we see it, you know, historically and today, there are interpersonal and financial stressors that are um, driving the increase of, of shootings and, and homicides in our community. Um, and so I think this is why I think behavioral health is so, so critical um, in, in getting people to change their mindsets um, and how they see violence and thinking that they have to respond with more violence. So it's really, you know, the work that Roca is doing around cognitive behavior therapy, I'm sorry, cognitive behavioral therapy is going to be very critical because the first thing you have to do is you have to change the mindset. Um, and then you have to provide opportunities for people to to see a future, to get to build hope. Um, and then they're less likely to engage in anything that might sabotage that. So, I, you know, these things together, it's a multi-dimensional problem. It's a very complex issue, but it's going to take a multi-pronged approach and you're tackling it at various different angles, working with the individual the families, the community. Um, and let's not forget about the systems levels and how, you know, some people are struggling with um, not having affordable housing or affordable child care. They're living in food deserts. They're looking for ways to survive. And so we, um, as a part of a system, um, looking at those system level strategies that can really try to mitigate that. Yeah, so when you talk about this ecosystem mm -hmm. of uh, community violence intervention, that's what you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, it has to do with housing. It has to do with job opportunities. It has to do with transportation. It has to do with child care. It has to do with Our hospital systems. Yeah. I would say they're a key part of it. We, we're really happy that all of our major medical systems have wanted to be a part of the strategy, too, and um, are standing up where they didn't exist, hospital violence intervention programs, making sure that if someone's coming into a hospital with a gunshot, we know that when they're released, they're probably at the highest risk for potential retaliating or being re-victimized. And so having someone there that can meet that person bedside and say, what's going on? What can we do to reduce that risk when you leave? And how can we get you connected to services? It's so essential in closing those gaps. It's probably too early to make a direct correlation between the work that you all are doing and the fewer uh, the, the, the improving numbers when it comes to homicides and non-fatal shootings. But Stephanie, in terms of uh, the metrics that you pay the most attention to, we have this homicide number and non-fatal shooting number, but what are the other numbers that you're looking at when you talk about a data-driven, uh, evidence-based approach? Um, w what's important to you? Great question. Um, we look at a lot of data. One of the first things that we did as an agency was also work to stand up in-house data capacity. We wanted to be able to um, tell the story and the power of the work that not only Monty was doing as a direct service provider, but also our community-based organizations were giving funding to, because ideally we're able to show a really strong case for why that funding should continue and why it should be 
publicly funded. Um, and so we're looking at everything from the number of referrals we're making to service providers for participants identified by, by any of these programs and strategies. We're looking at the number of mediations conducted, um, not just by uh, Safe Streets, but also by other organizations that engage in mediations. And one of the pieces of data that we look at when we um, log and um, document mediations is how likely this mediation was to result in violence. And in many cases, it's likely if this conflict was left unaddressed, if no one intervened, this is something that's very likely to result in violence. So when we see numbers that over 1,300 mediations have taken place across 10 Safe Street sites in 2023 to date, that means 1,300 potential incidents that were diverting from violence. When we're thinking about the 65 fewer people who have been killed um, this by this time this year compared to last year, I'm thinking a lot about um, the ripple effects of that. I'm thinking about how those are families, those are friends, that is um, entire communities who have been spared from that traumatization um, and who are not dealing with that loss. And so we have to really make sure that as much as we focus on the numbers, we don't miss the the human piece of that too. Um, and so I think we like to find ways at Monsi to make sure we're not just lifting up the aggregate numbers of the impact of our work, which is certainly important, but we're also telling the stories of the people whose lives have been changed as a result of that intervention and this strategy. And I think it's not far-fetched to say that um, this is the first time Baltimore has ever had the benefit of having a coordinated, comprehensive public safety strategy that seeks to go beyond the role of law enforcement that we're now seeing these kind of numbers um, and, and declines. And I think we want to continue to to push forward. We all see so many ways that we can be um, taking this work to the next level and deepening our connections across programs and filling gaps. And Aisha, when it comes to conflict resolution, mediation, this is a fundamental dimension of the work that you all are doing. There are a lot of different groups doing it. Safe Streets is perhaps the highest profile one, and they you know, have had some great successes. There have been some bumps in the road with Safe Streets. We just had an arrest in Bel Air Edison uh, and a, you know, an FBI raid and that, uh, that location. Um, but there are other groups. You, know, you talk about We Are Us and, and some of these other groups that are also doing mediation. Is, is there a danger that it's kind of scattershot? I mean, which is a terrible uh, metaphor to use, but, but is it is it... Um, is it coordinated? I mean, does it need to be coordinated? You know what I'm asking? Definitely. Um, and I think that's what the CVI ecosystem is designed to do just that, to bring all of those um, programs and those exist those programs that are existing now, as well as expanding to new um, program opportunities and bringing it under the ecosystem so that you can have a better coordinated approach. Uh, I certainly think that that's the per one of the purposes of the CVI ecosystem is to do just that. In, in your experience, because you uh, worked with Safe Streets uh, mm -hmm. earlier in your career, uh, what is the openness? What is the the receptivity to you know mediation assistance and to conflict resolution training? Uh, I mean, it's tough. Somebody somebody does you wrong. Uh, it's tough to resist the temptation to go back and, and retaliate. Well, I think it's the relationships, and I think that's why programs like We Are Us and Safe Streets uh, and the CVI intervention is really around the relationships that are in the communities, using individuals from the communities who, who know others, the neighbors in, in, in the communities and those who are involved in violence. Through those relationships,
relationships, they have an opportunity to really come up with an alternative, a restorative process to deal with that conflict. And I think that if if the program is able to get the individual to stop and listen to them, then that's the perfect opportunity. If they're willing to stop and listen, then I think they have a major opportunity to really de-escalate, bring the two parties together to kind of come up with some type of solution. And they may never be friends, but at least they can agree not to use violence to address that. Yeah, and as we've seen uh, all too many times, you know, it's very dangerous work. I mean, because there have been safe streets liaison workers uh, who have been killed in the line of duty. I mean, it's a really, it's a difficult thing. Aisha Burgess is a member of the Community Violence Intervention Advisory Board in the city of Baltimore. Thank you for your work and for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And Stephanie Mavronis is the interim director of Monsi, the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. She'll be back with us after a quick break. And when we do come back, we'll talk about the group violence reduction strategy with Jeremy Biddle. He's with the Crime and Justice Policy Lab and Deputy Police Commissioner Monique Brown. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. If you'd like to join our conversation, 410-662-8780, our email midday at WIPR.org. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station. 88.1 WIPR. Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow on the show, a conversation about how to attract more people to live in the city of Baltimore. What can the city do to make sure people who are here don't choose to leave? And how can the city entice new people to call Baltimore home? My guest will be Annie Milley. She's the executive director of Live Baltimore, and she'll join me here tomorrow on midday. And certainly crime is one of the reasons people cite when they choose to move out of Baltimore. So what's your perception of safety in our city? Let's see how that perception lines up with the data about crime, particularly violent crime. Stephanie Mavronis is the interim director of Monsi, the mayor's office of neighborhood safety and engagement. She's with me here in Studio A, and we're joined now by Deputy Police Commissioner Monique Brown of the Baltimore City Police Department. D.C. Brown, welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm grateful for this opportunity to be here today well, as a partner. We're glad. And congratulations on your promotion, which is still pretty new. It still still smells like a new car, right? You know, yes, that it promotion. does. Very good. Yes. And Jeremy Biddle is here as well. He's a senior advisor at the Crime and Justice Policy Lab at the University of Pennsylvania on projects related to violence prevention in the U.S. as well as Latin America and the Caribbean. He's serving as a special advisor for the Group Violence Reduction Strategy to the mayor and the police commissioner here in Baltimore. To join our conversation, 410-662-8780, our email midday at WIPR.org. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me. So, D.C. Brown, um, what we were just talking about the metrics that Stephanie Mavronis and Monsi are using with the Community Violence Inter- Intervention uh, Advisory Board and the ecosystem. Um, we have good numbers uh, to report about homicides and non-fatal shootings. What are the metrics that that mean a lot to you? Uh, you're you're in charge of community policing, patrolling now uh, in this new, this new role as a deputy commissioner. What are the what are the things that you're looking to to say? Oh yeah, this is working. So I would say um, as of today, we are down 65 homicides. 
um, from this time last year and 55 non-fatal shootings. Um, this is the largest reduction that we've had year over year in decades, and that's huge. I mean, we're making progress, but still the, the level of violence is, is still unacceptable. I will say I think in using or, or using metrics when it comes to the group violence reduction strategy is really how many folks we are getting to exit the criminal element involvement. That is the huge number that we should most certainly be focused on and the reduction in the violence that we're having. Yes, one homicide is way too many, but the more that we can continue to find other ways or other pathways for young people or those that are involved in what we see the violence, who are the most violent offenders, I guess you can say, and then also being involved in any of these other criminal elements that you know we investigate, the more that we can have those reductions and the more that we can have more individuals connected to services and support, I think is the best metrics for us to base the success of the strategy on. And Jeremy Biddle, uh, you study this. You study how different communities, different even countries, uh, approach the notion of violence and the problem and challenge of, of uh, public safety. Um, have you found uh, any comparable approach to this GVRS, the Group Violence Reduction Strategy? I mean, as a scholar, is it your opinion that GVRS is, in fact, the best, you know, best practices for this kind of thing? Thanks, thanks for the question, Tom. So, yes, um, GVRS is uh, a tried and true um, uh, strategy that has been around since the mid-90s. Um, according to the you know academic literature and evidence that we have, this is the most effective approach approach at the moment that has been evaluated and rigorously evaluated. Uh, not to say that there aren't um, you know promising uh, innovations that are on the horizon, but this is the best we have at the moment. Um, you know, another thing I'll say about this approach is that it has to be tailor made to the context in which it's implemented, and we've really taken pains to do so in Baltimore. The first step of that process was really understanding the problem as it exists here, understanding who's most directly impacted by violence. What does that population look like? What are their ties to the criminal justice system, their ties to group? You know, we found uh, through this evaluation uh, that we really call more kind of action research uh, that, you know, in Baltimore, the average age of a homicide and shooting victim and suspect is around 30, which tends to be much higher than most jurisdictions and certainly higher than uh, the public might assume, given the high levels of, of uh, youth violence that we see here as well. Yet, yet, yet when you're looking at just the raw numbers, the lives that we have to save, the lives that are most directly impacted, we, have, we know that this is also a population that we need to serve. We also know that you know, victim and offender populations are really one and the same. What does that mean in practice? It means the people doing the shooting are yeah. the same lives that we need to be saving. That's a really important mm -hmm. point. I mean, because we hear about uh, when we, we talk about homicides at the end of the year, we find that many of the people who are victims of homicide have had interactions with law enforcement, yep. you know, a dozen times, you know, in some cases. So um, it really it's, it is the same people. Um, is it a small group? Because I, I hear that a lot, especially around election time. And we're going to have, it, you know, an election season that heats up after the first of the year. I mean, I remember people running for mayor four years ago, eight years ago, say, well, there's 278 people. They had this I, very specific number. I don't know that we can quantify it with a number like that. But what I could say is, you know, in these action research exercises that we've done, we can establish that, for example, in the Western District, 75% of all shooting incidents involve a group member. We know that group members only account for about a thousand people of all community residents. Of that, of those group members, 
Th those that are actively engaged in violence right now, that population that's really the focus of GVRS is an even smaller number. So that's how we actually use intelligence. We use you know, police and community intelligence data to really narrow down on that focus population so that we're really addressing and intervening with those at the highest risk, not tomorrow, not in a year from now, but right now, mm -hmm. saving lives now and reducing violence in the near term. That's Jeremy Biddle. Stephanie Maronis is here and Deputy Commissioner Monique Brown. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Our number 410-662-8780. Our email midday at WIPR.org. And Stephanie, let's make sure folks understand what this group part of the group violence reduction strategy means. It's not gangs. It's not the gang violence reduction. It's a group. So anybody who commits, uh, you know, perpetrates a, a violent crime, a gun crime, a murder, a non-fatal shooting is not necessarily uh, in this strategy uh, acting alone. Absolutely. I think building on what um, we just heard Jeremy say, when we look at a, a district like the Western District, where we're seeing a very high proportion of the violence being driven by groups, which I think we define as a, a social network that engages in violence, um, that's significant. We don't see group violence driving violence in other parts of the city. Quite so a social network that engages in violence, that does sound like a gang. I mean, isn't the group also, you know, just regular old friends, family members? I mean, how 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 broadly is that defined? It could be. Um, I think it could be. I mean, we're used to hearing like certain gangs with with big names, um, and when we limit ourselves to just thinking about those gangs, I think we're missing other um, groups of friends, groups of neighbors who work together to potentially commit acts of violence. Um, I think Jeremy can probably even describe this better than I might be able to, but um, but I think it is an important distinction and the language we use here is very intentional um, and why we focus on that. I think it speaks to the realities that we're seeing on the ground um, and it also opens up new avenues for us to intervene um, and think about who who can we engage to also credibly deliver that message to individuals saying, hey, we, we see what's happening. We see that you're engaging in violence with this group of people. We need that to change, and we have resources to offer you, but we're going to need you to make a decision to, to step away and do that. And uh, D.C. Brown, how does community policing figure into this approach? Your boss, uh, Commissioner Worley, was on the show a couple weeks ago, and that's the thing that he is He's all over. He, he wants community policing to really be elevated. Uh, and not that his predecessor didn't. I mean, certainly Commissioner Harrison was a big fan of community policing. But d define what that is, actually. And, I mean, we hear just sort of generally it's, it's getting cops out of the cars and walking around and talking to folks. But, but how does that particular approach to policing fit into this overall strategy? I think we have to look at it differently. Yes, having cops out of the car to be able to engage with our community is is a big piece. We know community wants to be able to develop relationship with, with officers. They want that opportunity to be able to have some one-on-one -on -one time or some face-to-face -face time with them. But I think that we have to look at it bigger, like um, more problem-oriented policing, more problem-solving together with community where we are having those interactions where we recognize that these environmental issues exist. We do know that the, the GVR uh, strategy is more person and people-based. But once we can get in and start looking at environment, changing some of it, like SEPTED, crime prevention through environmental design, lights are out, 
is trash, there's dumping, there's vacant houses, there are all of these other elements that lead up into why crime may be occurring in a particular location and why it stays there in a particular location. We can make those right extractions, whether it be through connecting maybe that group that is operating in the area to take resources or even extractions, in some cases enforcement. But how do we change that environment so we make it undesirable to them to be able to come back to continue to operate there and more pleasurable for the community to take more of a, a, a stake in it to say we are now empowered to take our community back. So looking at it that way, the problem oriented policing model, it works. It helps us, you know, eliminate a lot of that discord. It helps us to beautify our community and it also helps us to build community capacity where we are now bringing other city agencies at the table with us. We are taking the opportunity to listen. We're not driving the train as far as BPD. We're listening. And now we are collaborating around the table with every, every other agency who we need to have a partnership to come in and do a piece of work that helps us all collectively solve the problem. And Jeremy Biddle, let me pick up on something you mentioned a minute ago, and that is that the average age of the folks that you're working with is in the 30s. And that's older, as you mentioned, than many other places. Um, we hear a lot recently about the uptick in juvenile crime. Uh, we uh, and, and it's also interesting that it seems to me that there are whole, all sorts of programs and stuff for kids, for high school kids, you know, uh, early 20s and stuff. There's not so many programs. You don't hear about programs for 35-year-olds. Um, is that part of the challenge that you all face? It had been part of the challenge when we were initially building a foundation to actually make this kind of strategy viable. Again, we work from the problem backwards. So understanding what the gun violence epidemic actually looks like in these communities, we can build a tailor-made solution. And that was really the rationale behind the award of the, and I'll pass it to, to Stephanie to elaborate on this, the award to youth advocate programs to work with older men, to work with women, even to work with children under the age of 16. The population that ROCA does not serve, and ROCA does their work wonderfully, but the population that they don't but serve- But that's limited to early 20s. 16 yeah. to 24 high-risk young men, exactly. But the need far outstrips that supply. So the, really what we did by design was to help broaden that foundation so that it's really responsive to the, to the problem, not as we think it is, but the problem as it actually exists. And Stephanie, scaling this up is really hard because it is so labor intensive. I talked to a, a employer, a uh, guy who owns a recycling and a demo uh, company, and he hires a bunch of ROCA people, uh, and they come in, they come to work, they're called by their ROCA mentor, sometimes as many times as six times a day. They're every hour and a half. How's, how's it going? How you doing? Everything okay? Is there, did you get to work on time? You know, then 11.30 they're called, at one o'clock they're called, at 2.30 they're called. I mean, that kind of Hovering that kind of you know involvement is difficult. So right now the the GVRS strategy has been implemented in the Western District, which now for a couple of years now the Southwestern District. There are plans to get it in the Central District. Um, how do you do this when uh, there's a shortage of police officers? There's a shortage uh, of people uh, you know qualified to do counseling, etc. How's it how's it work? Absolutely. Um, so we're, like you mentioned, we are active in the Western District and Southwestern District. Um, we'll be in the Central District by the top of the year. The Central District's already um, ready to take on the strategy. They're already participating in the violence reviews where we're actually reviewing all the information we have about the incidents and understanding who and what is driving <laughs> violence. 
Um, so that's one. We've been clear this has been a citywide or is intended to be a citywide strategy from the beginning. Um, after we expand to the Central District, we're looking ahead early in 2024 um, to move to the Eastern District, which is significant, making sure we can get this strategy to the east side of Baltimore. Um, but as we scale, we have to make sure that not only have we stabilized in the districts we came from, this was really important, especially given that this summer we went through redistricting of our police district, something that had not happened, I think, since the 1950s. And so it was really necessary for us to see what's going to happen to the Western District, what's going to happen into the southwestern and how can we make sure um, that we're stabilized there before we expand because what we don't want to see happen is us moving super fast and then the strategy falls apart and so we're all very committed i think we have a unique moment in baltimore right now where the stars are aligned we have a mayor a police commissioner a state's attorney who are fully bought into the strategy we have service providers who are fully bought into the strategy and we're seeing people accept the services and we're seeing us be able to uphold that um, promise of swift and certain consequences when people continue to engage in violence and so i'll allow you know dc brown to talk about the bpd staffing piece which is really important but as we're preparing to scale to the central officially into the eastern district, what we're looking at on the Monty side of the house is making sure our service providers, Roca and Yap, are ready to, and prepared to take on that increase in participants that we'll be identifying through the strategy. Um, and just one thing to add here, Tom, you mentioned um, the way that Roca does their outreach with, with individuals. We see Yap doing this as well. It's what we call intensive life coaching. And this is something that's a cornerstone of community violence intervention. How do you have that credible person who can um, really reach out and help that person stay on the right path? Um, and so all of these things are integrated and come together. And I think um, it's why we're seeing the success that we're seeing in the strategy today. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk uh, to Deputy Commissioner Brown. We'll talk to you about the BPD's role in that and the staffing challenges. Stephanie Mavronis is the interim director of Monsi, the Baltimore City agency that oversees the city's violence reduction strategy. Deputy Commissioner Monique Brown heads up the Patrol and Community Policing Bureau of the Baltimore City Police Department. And Jeremy Biddle is a violence reduction expert from the Crime and Justice Policy Lab at the University of Pennsylvania. We'll have more with our guests on the other side of a quick break. But before we go to that break, each week here on Midday, it's our practice to read the names of the people who have lost their lives to violence in Baltimore City and to list their names on the Midday webpage. We do so to stand in witness to their untimely deaths and to remember their families and friends in their hour of grief. As we've mentioned today, so far this year, 255 people have been identified as victims of homicide in our city. Police have identified two people who were killed last week. They are John Murphy, he was 23 years old, and Marvin Jackson, he was 26 years old. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And 
Welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're talking about reducing violent crime in Baltimore City. My guests are Deputy Police Commissioner Monique Brown. She's in charge of the Patrol and Community Policing Bureau at the Baltimore City Police Department. Jeremy Biddle is a special advisor about violence reduction to Mayor Brandon Scott and Police Commissioner Richard Worley. And Stephanie Mavronis is the Interim Director of MONSI, the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. To join us, 410-662-8780 or email midday at WIPR.org. So, Deputy uh, Commissioner Brown, let's talk about the staffing issues uh, for the GVRS implementation in various districts because it's a special kind of cop who needs to be involved in this. It's, it's, uh, I assume these are people that get special training, and, they, and, and you can't just take you know, whoever, whoever, whoever's there and say, okay, now you're part of GVRS. So explain how that works. Um, well, we have a process. And through that process, you know, we, we interview. That's the way that we, you know, recruit the best talent that we think that would be more suited for that or better suited, I guess I should say, for, for this work. because From within the department. From within the department, yes. And as everyone know, I'm sure that Commissioner Woolley has been very vocal about, we're down about 500 plus officers. So when we're talking about scaling up and providing the, the resources that is needed for GVRS and for the strategy and for expansion, one, we have to be intentional about how we realign those existing resources, meaning, you know, we just have one pot of resources, which is still very slim, that we have to make sure that we're also supporting the expansion to each district that we go to without causing disruption to our day-to-day operations for patrol. That is our most forward-facing service. You know, as a service provider, we have to make sure that we are we still have continuity and being able to staff and service our community. So um, right now we're looking at adding eight new positions to, to support the strategy for GVU. It's still going to take some more realignment for us and also, again, being intentional. So as our academy classes come out, we sit down, we, you know, take a look at where we have the most need of resource in our patrol division first. Then we look at all of our other specialized units throughout the agency to include GVU. GVU is a priority for all of us, not just, you know, Monty or Jeremy being there to support us, but BPD as well. We all recognize this as all of our strategy, the city strategy for violence reduction. But is intentionality enough, you know, in terms of reality? I mean, it's one thing to want to do it. It's another thing to be able to do it. I mean, has, for example, the delay, and I I refer to it as a delay because uh, certainly when the mayor and I talk, he talks about, oh, yeah, it's going to be implemented in the central district, you know, any minute. And it's taken a while. It's not quite there yet. Is that delay, you know, solely attributable to to lack of BPD resources, or is it uh, more multi-pronged than that? I would say... um some, yes. Uh, you know, just making sure that we, we're not taking from other units that definitely need the support as well. Because if, if we take constantly from patrol, which is the backbone of our agency, then we put them to bare minimum and maybe compromise their health, their safety, you know, just making sure that we can staff them as well. Drafting is one of the things that I can tell you between uh, the commission and I that we would prefer not to do, to have to take people away from their family unexpectedly or or unplanned. So being able to forecast what that looks like, meaning that we have enough staffing in the right places as we're looking at expanding and as we're looking out, building out what what that looks like to support and continue to support the strategy. So, I mean, full implementation is still may take us time, but we, the balancing part 
is, is going to be critical. Even as we have new classes that come out, again, like I said, we look at those other areas that have a greater need and how do we make sure that we're supporting the strategy. And through our consent decree as well, we do still have some other components within the agency that has to stay well-staffed. So we, we, we have some competing priorities, but I think that our intentionality, as you're saying, really staying connected to the reality of where we are is that delicate balance of mm -hmm. making sure that. And Jeremy Biddle, what about the non-law uh, enforcement part of it? I mean, we hear about there's shortages now in the workforce of pharmacists and bus drivers and nurses and you name it. How about support personnel? How about people who you can recruit, recruit to work in safe streets? How about people you can recruit to work as, you know, life coaches, et cetera? Uh, I'll let Stephanie comment on that because she's closest to the recruitment for, for those positions. But I'll just say two things really quickly. First is, in terms of complicating factors that have delayed the timeline for scale-up, I would absolutely point to redistricting. We have to understand district boundaries changed. The Western District is no longer the Western District. Mm -hmm. It's a new Changed district. last August. Exactly. Uh, and we also have to understand that these districts... And the districts mayor seemed to be the one driving that, by the way. He seemed to want to have the districts change. Yeah. These districts changed, and we also know that they absorbed additional group violence. The Western District, mm -hmm. historically the most violent, became even more violent. The Southwest District absorbed all of what's known as the tri-district area, becoming more violent as well. So we have to understand that we were dealing with um, stabilization of new districts before we can you know, make that next jump to additional districts. So that was really, I think, very intentional in, in, in us really... Um, Walking it slow until we felt comfortable making that jump to make sure that we really were on a solid footing. Yeah. And uh, in fact, there was an uptick uh, in uh, violence in the Western District uh, after a year or so of some very good results there. You know, it, it started getting less good for a little while. Even though the, the, the data are really cloudy right now and murky mm -hmm. because, you know, we can't do we can't do year to date comparisons anymore. That's just the reality of where we are. Uh, so it is it is a little bit operating in the dark. The other thing I'll say in terms of the timeline is. We have to understand that this is systems change work. This is a massive undertaking. Um, you know, I could say for BPD, just as well for Monzi, this is about realignment of existing resources, refocus, becoming more effective, not only at policing, for example, but policing to reduce violence. It's a very special kind of focus that involves all of operations, enforcement, investigations, intelligence. So it's not just mm -hmm. about a single unit that is really driving and carrying the strategy. It's really about reforming internally a lot, lot of the department to make it more effective. Similarly, we have to build out this infrastructure in Monzi to really be able to um, prioritize and, and kind of put the primacy on, on intervention as the kind of first line of defense, offering those life-saving and life-altering services and supports that keep people safe and alive. Yeah. So, Stephanie, we just have a couple minutes left, so I want to put recruiting to the side for a second and talk about the ARPA money. As we mentioned earlier in the show, it's about $19.3 million uh, allocated towards violence reduction. When that ARPA money dries up in a year or two, then what happens? So actually, it's more. I was looking at the numbers this morning, and I know within our ARPA allocation, we had $11.6 million that was appointed to community violence intervention. So that supports some of our grants and about $12.83 million to group violence reduction strategy, which we also support with general funds. We're doing the planning associated with that right now. We're not going to wait until the end of the ARPA period to say what's, what happens next, but we are being really intentional about how we can plan, how we can seek other grant opportunities 
communities and also how we're collecting data to show the efficacy of the work. If we're going to ask um, Baltimoreans to pick up the tab, so to speak, for this work on the public um, with our general funds dollars, we want to make sure we can show it's a great use of our resources and a great return on investment. Great. And uh, Deputy Commissioner Brown, I want to give you the last word. We just have uh, 45 seconds left. Talk about trust. Uh, between the community and the police, between the police and safe streets, I've heard, you know, that there is a level of distrust that still uh, is, perhaps is a vestige of, you know, uh, ancient uh, ancient history. But but still, that's a that's a key element here, too. So I would say we still have some work to do. Um, but I think that, you know, the work is happening. We just have to give it time to show itself. We have many opportunities where we can engage with community. That's happening. Trust between Safe Streets and the police department, that's something that we, Steph and I, have already been communicating on how do we build that trust within between the two, you know, groups, between the commanders, between their teams, between Safe Streets and their team. How do we get them together? I mean, at the end of the day, we, we have to co-produce uh, public safety in all ways. And I think including community at the table for all of the things that we are doing and staying to be transparent goes a long way for us. It helps us build those relationships that we don't have and definitely strengthen the ones that we currently have. Monique Brown is a deputy commissioner with the Baltimore City Police Department. Jeremy Biddle, a senior advisor at the Crime and Justice Policy Lab at the University of Pennsylvania. Stephanie Mavronis is the interim director of the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. Thanks to you all. I appreciate it. Happy holidays. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, the population of Baltimore has been in steady decline for 70 years. How do we turn that around? I'll speak with Annie Milley, the executive director of Live Baltimore. Here and Now is up next after news. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. <laughs>